This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and everyday people about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen. Hi, and welcome to Amicus, a new legal podcast from Slate. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, Slate Supreme Court correspondent, and on this third episode of Amicus, we're going to talk to two people making news at the High Court this week. One is Roberta Kaplan. She was Edie Windsor's lawyer in the lawsuit that became United States v. Windsor, the Supreme Court case that opened the floodgates to same-sex marriage. As of this week, Robbie is also lead counsel in a challenge to the gay marriage ban in Mississippi. We're going to talk to her about the long, short road from the highest court in the land to same-sex marriage in the Deep South. But first, I have the pleasure of being joined by Jeffrey Tubin, staff writer for The New Yorker and senior legal analyst for CNN. Jeff has a great piece in this week's New Yorker about a big interview he scored with President Obama. They talked about the president's judicial legacy and the surprising fact that while none of us were looking, the president managed to appoint an awful lot of liberal judges to the federal bench. Jeff. Welcome to Amicus. Hi, Dahlia. It is great to have you. And this was a really interesting kind of big, fat interview with the president about all things legal. Uh, But I thought I might start with the question that I came out a little bit scratching my head, Jeff, was I remember in 2008, uh, we had all said that George W. Bush's one enduring legacy was going to be the transformation of the federal bench, right? President Bush in 2008 bragged to uh, the Federalist Society that he had seated himself personally one third of the federal bench, that they were all young and conservative, and this was going to be his legacy. It was going to change the shape of the judiciary. And here we are a few years later, and Obama seems to have done the same thing. So help me with the math. Who has, in fact, changed the shape of the federal bench for all time? Well, it's very close, actually. They have named uh, almost identical numbers of circuit court judges and district court judges. And a lot of it just is a matter of the passage of time that uh, when you are president for six years, as Obama has been, and uh, the Senate takes seriously the obligation to pass on your judicial nominees, you get a lot of judges piling up. And since the Senate has been in Democratic hands for uh, Obama's entire presidency, to date, that is, and, and Harry Reid, uh, especially in the last two years, has really invested a lot of time and energy in the subject of confirming judges. Uh, Obama has made a very significant impact, and especially now at the Court of Appeals level, Democratic nominees, that is Clinton, Obama, and a handful of of Carter uh, survivors, really dominate uh, most of the circuit courts of appeals now. Jeff, I think for me, the most interesting part of this new New Yorker 
piece uh, is the part where you stand at the center and ask yourself, I think impliedly, maybe not on paper, but what happened to Kanla Obama? Uh, what happened to the guy who, you know, was a Harvard uh, law graduate who presumably thinks a lot about constitutional vision, thinks a lot about judges? Uh, I think your language is, is to the extent that you you describe his judges, you say, it's a metaphor for the presidency, uh, symbolically rich, but substantively hazy. And I think the point is that Obama could have, if he wanted to, really engaged with a decades-long project from the Federalist Society right, the constitutional thinkers on the right, who have, you know, this Mies-Reagan version of, you know, we want minimalist judges, we want judicial humility, we want close reading of the Constitution. And Obama chose not to do that dance. He chose, uh, as you point out, to create a federal bench that is very diverse, uh, has a lot of minorities, a lot of women, a lot of openly gay judges for the first time, but that that isn't a substitute for a, a, a liberal constitutional vision. Is that fair, what I'm saying? Oh, I, I, th- I think it's very fair. Uh, I, I think, you know, that is one of the, the mysteries of the Obama presidency, but one I think that is that can be solved um, because you're, you're certainly correct that diversity was an enormous priority, and you know the the, the federal bench is vastly more diverse uh, than it had been. Overall, uh, more than half of Obama's appointees are not white men, which is way uh, more diverse than than any previous president. But it is also true that this former constitutional law teacher at University of Chicago is not someone who believes that liberals, Democrats, progressives, whatever you want to call them, need to develop an alternative vision of the Constitution to the one that has become so familiar, which is that the Constitution needs to be interpreted according to its original meaning, that there should be lower barriers between church and state, that there should be you know, speed up executions, that abortion is not protected by the Constitution. All of these Republican principles don't have an opposing theoretical approach, uh, at least from the high levels uh, of the Democratic Party. This is just not something that President Obama chooses to engage in. And, And Jeff, I'm not completely clear from the interview, but is that because he doesn't have that overarching liberal constitutional vision? He doesn't want one. He has one, but it's a secret. Uh, I know he has said uh, in so many words that the time for Thurgood Marshall is over, uh, that, right. we, that the sell-by date is passed for that kind of constitutional vision. So I'm wondering, is it simply the case that he just feels this is an unnecessary uh, conversation to be having? Well, I, I would say two things in answer to that. First is he is not all that liberal on constitutional issues, period. He is not someone who thinks, like Thurgood Marshall, like William Brennan, that the Constitution is an engine for creating equality in America. He, he is just someone who, who is much closer, I think, to a sort of liberal process person who believes that in the overwhelming majority of cases, the court should defer to the democratically elected branches of government. I think that's why what offends him so much is the aggressive 
uh, use of the Constitution by conservatives to strike down the Voting Rights Act, to strike down Obamacare. Uh, that is something that really offends him. Second, I think he, he believes that political change comes from the ballot box, not the courthouse. Um, he, he is someone who thinks that you can't rely too much on the courts to make political change, that you have to elect people whom you believe in, and that's how this country is going to change, not by nominating liberals to the bench. And even when he stares down the barrel of courts striking down the Affordable Care Act, for instance, whether, you know, in, in, in the original iteration of the Obamacare challenges or the new challenges to the states, uh, he doesn't look at that and say, whether I like it or not, courts do affect change. So I'd better put a lot of raging liberals on the courts? He doesn't make that leap? Well, you put your finger on sort of what I was wondering most when I interviewed him, because I knew going in, he had written and said things before he was president about how courts don't matter as much as politics. And I, and I was half expecting him to say, boy, have I learned my lesson. You know, I see what these Republican judges have tried to do to me. But he didn't say that. And you know, he, he did say that um, he thinks judges ought to stay out of political matters as much as possible. And he strongly believes that Obamacare should be upheld and that the Voting Rights Act should have been upheld. But, you know, he's a cool guy. <laughs> and he, in every sense of the word, you know, he is, he is cool in the appealing term, but he is also not, you know, he does not seem to have a white-hot political anger. So I was surprised that he didn't say gosh, courts mattered a little more than I thought. So that's a, a gorgeous segue to my favorite part of your interview where you just say to him, hey, what was your favorite court decision? And he surprised you. He sure did, because I expected, you know, upholding the Affordable Care Act, striking down Defensive Marriage Act. But no, it, it was the decision, just a now a very recent decision, where the court denied cert, did, refused to hear, all the challenges to the same-sex marriage laws, where the court essentially let the political process continue. And I thought that was sort of a perfect metaphor for his view of the courts, that even though he told me, which he had never said before, that he believes the Constitution protects gay people's right to marry in all 50 states, that the Equal Protection Clause guarantees gay people the right to marry, he thought it was a very good thing that the court stayed out of the controversy for the time being, allowing the state-by-state -state process to continue. And I thought that really summed up his view that change in this country comes from grassroots political change, not from thunderbolts from the Supreme Court. And, and the courts are at their very best when they're napping by the fire, kind of just resting and watching the world go by. And that is not what a liberal activist thinks. <laughs> I mean, it really just isn't. I mean, <laughs> no. I, 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 and, and I think that tells you something about who he is and what he believes. He is not a passionate liberal on these subjects. It, it was funny, Jeff, when I, I read your article, I came away thinking, so so the president leads from behind, 
Congress leads from behind and also the court leads from behind, raising the question, who is leading from in front? Uh, And it's really just so interesting to me that this is sort of a contest to see who can be most passive as the world sorts itself out. (laughs) I I, I hadn't thought of it in those terms, but I think that's right. I guess same-sex marriage has turned into this weird sort of Alphonse and Gaston, you know, you you go first, you go first. And, uh, but look, if you believe in same-sex marriage, you've made a lot of progress. So I guess it, you know, how it precisely happens it shouldn't be as big a concern. The last thing I want to ask you about is is the part of your interview where the president lights up, and that's uh, your back and forth about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who right. has just become a meme, who has a Tumblr, who has this fan base that calls her Notorious RBG after the rapper uh, Notorious B.I.G., and uh, T-shirts and tiaras and this whole world of Ruth Bader Ginsburg worship. And you kind of challenge him a little bit and say, you know, Justice Ginsburg snuffing around telling people no one like Ruth Bader Ginsburg's ever going to get confirmed again. And you ask him if anyone like Ruth Bader Ginsburg could get confirmed again. What What's his thought on the possibility of ever uh, again confirming a, a, a radical ACLU lawyer? Well, I, you know, you look at Obama's had the chance to nominate 300 judges. None of them are radical ACLU lawyers. I mean, he, he, he is much more someone who believes in professional competence, but not taking risks uh, with judicial nominees. You know, his nominees are highly credentialed and definitely not part of the conservative legal movement, but they are not fiery liberals. You know, I guess when the subject of Ruth Bader Ginsburg came up, it was sort of like how everyone is when the subject of Ruth Bader Ginsburg comes up these days. You know, he got a big smile on his face because Ginsburg has turned into this pop culture icon that uh, no one really expected. But you could tell that Obama personally just has a lot of affection for her. And he, he was very much saying... Like, I'm not messing with Ruth Ginsburg. She's going to quit when she's going to quit, and I have no advice to her on that subject. Yeah, I think we're all increasingly terrified of her as she she actually becomes a rapper, Jeff. I think that we all really feel like she could maybe hurt us with her <laughs> with her Canadian Air Force exercises that she does. Well, uh, and, and she, she also, I mean, for those of us who've followed her career, I mean, here you have the individual on the Supreme Court who was the most shy, the most retiring, the most huddled up in a corner in a public setting, who has become this boisterous public figure who is giving almost a real-time account of what's going on in the Supreme Court to a series of interviews. I mean, it is the most hilarious and delicious conversion that I can certainly recall with the court. No, it's she's she's come right up to the line of tweeting. I mean, she's there's, <laughs> right. there's no unexpressed emotion there anymore. And I and I think it's interesting. I mean, we could talk about this for a second, but I do think it's almost as though she's given up on the court itself, or at least insofar as she's hit the limit of her influence there. And so I think now she's turned particularly to the women uh, and particularly to the young women of the country and said, you know, can you believe what I put up with every day? This is what's going on here. What are we going to do about it? That's what it feels like to me. Well, I, I think there, there is certainly some of that. You know, the, the justices quickly get a sense of the limits of their own power. But most of them, virtually all of them, 
just suffer in silence. They write their opinions and they hope for the best. But I think Ginsburg has recognized the limits of that approach, that uh, you know, this is a court with, on, on most issues, five very conservative votes. And she's in dissent on issues that have, are of great importance to her. And, and I think she feels that just writing passionate dissents is not enough. She wants to become a public figure, wants to be part of the public debate. And she's doing so with a vengeance. Well, I think our next goal here at Amicus is to get her to come on and, and possibly rap with me. But uh, at, the, at the rate it's going, <laughs> she's going to want your job, not to be a guest. <laughs> Jeff Tubin, it is just a joy speaking to you. Thank you for coming on. My pleasure, Dahlia. Jeff Tubin has been a staff writer at The New Yorker since 1993. He's a senior legal analyst at CNN. Now we turn to Roberta Kaplan. She's the lawyer who stood up at the U.S. Supreme Court in the fall of 2012 and argued United States versus Windsor. Now, technically, Windsor was just a limited challenge to the Defense of Marriage Act, or DOMA. That was a federal law that denied recognition to same-sex marriages performed in the states that allowed them. Robbie's client at the time was Edie Windsor, who'd been legally married to her partner and yet was confronted with a massive estate tax when the partner died because the government wouldn't recognize their marriage. Now, members of Congress had said some truly awful things about their disapproval of gay couples when they enacted DOMA. And we know that you can't go around passing laws because you hate gay people. But some of the conservative justices on the court weren't quite sure what the problem was anymore. They felt that gay rights advocates had been so successful in affecting a change in attitude toward gay people that there was really no problem of hatred toward gay people anymore. With that as background, let's listen now to how Robbie Kaplan opened her argument to the Supreme Court justices all the way back in 2012 in the United States versus Windsor. Because of DOMA, many thousands of people who are legally married under the laws of nine sovereign states and the District of Columbia are being treated as unmarried by the federal government solely because they are gay. When Windsor struck down the Defense of Marriage Act, court after court after court used it to strike down their own state's gay marriage bans. What that means is that thanks in large part to Windsor, which means thanks in large part to my next guest, we are now at 32 states. Robbie Kaplan, welcome to Amicus. Thank, thank you, Dahlia. Am I right? Are we at 32 today? I think that's right. I mean, it changes every day. So even for me, it's hard to keep up. But I think 32 plus the District of Columbia. And uh, I want you to talk about the amazing arc uh, that had you arguing Windsor less than two years ago. And then... Windsor gets decided, and now you're in Mississippi. So tell us what brings you to Mississippi. Well, besides the fact that I really like Southern food, uh, which is one of the reasons why we're down in Mississippi, the, the main reason is because Mississippi was one of the few states out there that did not have a challenge in federal court to uh, the state's marriage bans. And uh, we were approached by some uh, an organization down there called the Campaign for Southern Equality, and they wanted to bring that challenge, and they had some um, very, very uh, touching stories with couples uh, who wanted to be involved in the lawsuit. And literally, they contacted us, I would say, probably seven days ago, 10 days ago maximum, we've, and we put together a case and filed it. And I think because we just got off the line with Jeff Tubin, who wrote a piece only this week talking about 
the Obama judges and the extent to which Obama's judicial appointments have shifted the landscape even imperceptibly, it's probably worth pointing out that the judge that you pulled in Mississippi is an Obama appointee. He is, and I I believe he's the second only African-American federal judge from Mississippi. Can you talk a little bit about what you're arguing in your pleadings? Yeah, sure. You know, I'm a bit of a law geek, so I like to write briefs. And I have to say this is one of the most fun briefs I think I've ever written in my entire career. And that's because the entire brief is pretty much uh, citations and quotations from post-Windsor cases that basically say, look, there's really no good reason left to deny gay people equality under the law. Uh, So we argue all the traditional arguments that people have made, that gay people have a right to be treated the same as everyone else, that gay people have the fundamental right to marry. But we back up those arguments this time only with post-Windsor, the 40-plus post-Windsor decisions, including some incredibly good and funny quotes from judges like Judge Posner and Judge Jacobs in the Second Circuit and others. So it really is. I mean, you're just plugging in. In effect, what Windsor set into motion, all the judges who took a whack at same-sex marriage afterwards, and you're just plugging all of those in into this kind of collage of, I told you so. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's kind of, I told you so, I told you so, and I told you so. Over and over and over again. So, so take us back to Windsor. I, I mean, you you stood at the Supreme Court and you argued this case. Did you believe for a minute that two years later we would be where we are? Uh, no. I mean, <laughs> I gave a I, I, short answer is no. I gave a speech that summer after we got the decision. The decision was at the end of June and in August. In 2013. August 2013. And I gave a speech uh, in D.C. in which I analogized Windsor uh, to the Battle of Normandy in the struggle for gay rights. And I said we had basically won the Battle of Normandy. We had to go forward and conquer the rest of Europe. But it was the big turning point. But even then, and, and frankly, I think a lot of people were shocked that I had the chutzpah to say that because there's always a sense, understandably, in our community that we have a long way to go and we have to keep on fighting. And that's that's certainly true. Um, But even then, if you had told me when I gave that speech that within two years we'd be where we are today, you know, I think I would have told you that you had to sober up a bit. I would have told you then that was just totally unrealistic. Just parenthetically, Robbie, do you think you're going to say the word chutzpah at your hearing on November 12th in Mississippi? You know what? You've not challenged me, so I'm going to do my best to try. <laughs> so so I want to play a little bit of audio for you, uh, if I may. And this is from the Windsor argument that you did that ended up being, uh, as you said, the, the Battle of Normandy. And just to set it up, this is Paul Clement going back and forth uh, with Elena Kagan, again, on this question of what was animating a Congress that passed the Defense of Marriage Act. Uh, So let's play it, and then we can talk about it. The other point I would make, but I also eventually want to get around to the animus point, but the other point I would make is when you look at Congress doing something that is unusual, that deviates from the way they've they've proceeded in the past, you have to ask, well, was there a good reason? And in a sense, you have to understand that in 1996, something's happening that is, in a sense, forcing Congress to choose between its historic practice of deferring to the states and its historic practice of preferring uniformity. Up until 1996, it essentially has it both ways. Every state has the traditional definition. Congress knows that's the definition that's embedded in every federal law. It says, fine, we can defer. Okay, 1996. Well, is what happened in 1996, and I'm, I'm going to quote from the House report here, is that Congress decided 
to reflect and honor a collective moral judgment and to express moral disapproval of homosexuality. Is that what happened in 1996? Does the House report say that? Of course the House report says that. And if that's enough to invalidate the statute, then you should invalidate the statute. But that's never been your approach. Robbie, I wonder if you can tell us what went through your mind when Elena Kagan more or less said this statute was passed because of a feeling of animus towards gays. Sure. Well, so first of all, I think if, if, at least for me, if I ever have a choice in life about being cross-examined by Justice Kagan or by anyone else on the planet, I think I will probably choose anyone else on the planet. Um, This is a devastating exchange, um, and she's getting right to the heart of the issue. And right to an issue that we literally obsessed on in the case because we spent so much time in the case trying to think about how to convey to the court that DOMA was not some ordinary statute. It wasn't as if Congress was just reappropriating money to the parks or to the post office. I'm not sure today that's so ordinary anyway, but it wasn't some ordinary statute. There was really something extraordinary going on. And the problem is, whether it's women's rights or gay rights or anything else, when you make those kinds of arguments, you always are met with what I call the finger-pointing argument back, which is, okay, you're saying that maybe some of the people who were behind DOMA didn't have the best motives. You're just calling everyone a homophobe. You know, Isn't that your argument? And I would say that most of the briefs, certainly most of the amicus briefs that were filed at the court against us, made that argument over and over and over again. And so it was so important for us to get across that DOMA was an unusual thing, that Congress literally said uh, they were passing the statute based on a moral disapproval of gay people. And so for Justice Kagan to do it that way, to bring it up and make that point, um, I have to tell you, when I heard her say that, I I almost had to hold my arm down not to do kind of a cheer uh, sitting at a council's table. I'm glad I managed to control myself and not do that. Uh, But that was certainly how I was feeling. And and Paul Clement is, I think you would agree with me, truly one of the finest advocates I've ever seen. Uh, And he appeared a a little bit pole-axed by that. Yeah, no question. He's a superb advocate. Uh, He's had a lot of great wins uh, in cases since then. Uh, He's a true professional. But I do think he was a bit taken aback. And again, if you listen to his answer where he says, does it say that in the statute? Yes, it says that in the statute. And if that's enough to invalidate the statute, then you should invalidate the statute. I think a very good reading of the majority opinion by Justice Kennedy is that's exactly what the court decided to do. I want to play one other colloquy for you. The colloquy that you have with Chief Justice John Roberts, it was probably a pretty tense moment. So I'm going to play it and then we can talk about it. You don't doubt that the lobby supporting the enactment of same-sex marriage laws in different states is politically powerful, do you? Um, with respect to that category, that categorization of the term uh, for purposes of heightened scrutiny, I would, Your Honor. I don't. Really? Yes. As far as I can tell, political figures are falling over themselves to endorse your side of the, of the case. The fact of the matter is, Mr. Chief Justice, is that no other group in recent history has been subjected to popular referenda to take away rights that have already been given or exclude those rights the way gay people have. And only two of those referenda have ever lost. One was in Arizona. It then passed a couple of years later. One was in Minnesota, where they already have a statute on the books that prohibits marriages between gay people. So I don't think, and until 1990, Gay people were not allowed to enter this country. So I don't think that the political power of gay people today could possibly be seen within that framework uh, and certainly is analogous 
I think gay people are far weaker than women were at the time of Frontier. Well, but you just referred to a sea change in people's understandings and values from 1996 when DOMA was enacted. And I'm just trying to see where that comes from, if not from the political effectiveness of uh, — uh, groups on your side of the case. To flip the language of the House report, Mr. Chief Justice, I think it comes from a moral understanding today that gay people are no different and that gay married couples' relationships are not significantly different than the relationships of straight married couples. I don't think that... So, so Ravi, talk a little bit about the genesis of that expression, that moral understanding answer that you gave the Chief Justice in that conversation. Yeah, so literally every time I hear that, I mean... Almost every answer uh, that I gave had been one uh, that I had repeated during our practice sessions or moot courts many, many, many times. So when you do a moot court for a case like this, uh, most people go through this process essentially of, of torture, which I did, where they go to these moot courts and you have people pretending that they are the justices, asking you questions for 45 or 50 minutes, and then they spend the next hour critiquing every word you said. I mean, maybe some kinds of, you know, surgery without anesthesia would be better. Uh, but I can't imagine it. It's just a painful process. And practically every answer I gave uh, is one that we had practiced during those moot court sessions, except the answer that you heard at the very end, where I, I had said, I had said basically, no, Mr. Chief Justice, what's really going on here is not Americans following politicians. In fact, I don't think Americans ever follow politicians, and certainly not here. But here what's going on is politicians following Americans, because what happened is that it's the flip of what happened in 1996 when DOMA was enacted and Congress said it was doing so based on a moral disapproval of gay people. Today, what people have is a moral understanding, the opposite, that gay people are no different than anyone else. And I remember when that answer popped into my head um, and I thought to myself, "Okay, I can't really turn around and vet this with anyone. I think it's going to work and I'm just going to go for it. Uh, Unfortunately, I I was right about that. It's interesting because, in a sense, we go from in a a pretty compressed time span, kind of moral outrage to moral tolerance to something even more than that, moral understanding. And it's one of the issues I think that the chief justice was really struggling with in that colloquy with you was to sort of understand where that moral understanding was coming from and why it should be driving constitutional doctrine. Yeah, you know, when I was um, working on the case, I had a post-it on my computer that said it's all about Edie Stupid, borrowing from the Clinton campaign. And, you know, I think part of that post-it was there because we were intensely focused on the facts of our case. We thought they were incredibly powerful facts, and we wanted to constantly emphasize them for the courts. I also think I had it there uh, in part, at least subconsciously, to constantly remind myself that my duty as a lawyer, and this is in any case for any client, is to put the client first and not to put my own stuff in the case because the case doesn't have to do with my own stuff. And here, of course, you know, I'm, I'm a lesbian and I'm married. And so DOMA clearly had an impact on me. And I think that post-it was always saying to myself, it's all about Edie, Robbie, you know, put your own stuff out of it. However, when I listen to that exchange between me and the Chief Justice, and I kind of hear my voice crack a little bit when I'm talking about the uh, INS regulations that didn't let gays enter the country until 1990, uh, I think part of the Robbie Kaplan seeps through, unfortunately, or fortunately, but I can hear it seeping through. And the truth is, I think at that point, it probably was, it was not a bad thing. It was probably a good thing. Let's end on Edie Windsor uh, sure. because we uh, talked to Jeff Tubin earlier about 
fierce octogenarians in the <laughs> in the person of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Uh, why Edie Windsor? What was it about her story that made Windsor an attractive vehicle for you? I mean, it was the whole thing. Uh, you know, when I walked into her apartment that day, the first time I met her, it was quite honestly uh, how incredibly charming she is, how bright she is, how charismatic she is, how beautiful physically she is. And then on top of all that, I mean, think about a marriage. I mean, this is uh, two women who lived together for 44 years. Uh, many of those years, one of them was essentially paralyzed. She was a quadriplegic. And when you think about the marriage oath, the traditional marriage oath that says, in sickness and in health till death do us part, uh, there's a couple who really lived those words and took them seriously. And it's hard to imagine any couple, any married couple, uh, who took them more seriously than Thea and Edie. So I personally was very moved by those facts, and I thought Americans would be moved by those facts, and I even thought the justices would be moved by those facts, many of whom are, frankly, as you pointed out, uh, contemporaries of Edie. And I thought that they would very much understand not only her marriage to Thea uh, is very similar to their own marriages, but all those years that she had to live in the closet because it was impossible for gay people to be out uh, and to live a normal life. Robbie Kaplan was Edie Windsor's lawyer in uh, United States v. Windsor, the case that I think arguably brought us to where we are right now. And she is lead counsel in the Mississippi Challenge ongoing to the same-sex marriage ban in that state. Roberta Kaplan, thank you very, very much for joining us on Amicus today. Thank you so much. And that's it for this episode of Slate's Amicus Podcast. Let us know what you think of the show and let us know what you want to hear in future episodes. We really like your letters. You can reach us at amicus at slate.com. That's amicus, A-M-I-C-U-S, at slate.com. Thanks also to the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, where our show is taped. Our producer is Tony Field. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. And the executive producer is Andy Bowers. I'm Dahlia Lithwick. We'll be back with you soon for the next edition of Amicus. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.